the interesting things about vacation, though, is this, that here at the end of this month, at the end of February, uh, Morgan and I will actually be celebrating our anniversary. And I'm at, it's number six, yeah, that's on the 25th of February, which by the way is Cindy Baker's birthday. So like you all can wish her happy birthday and us a happy anniversary at the same time and congratulate Morgan for putting up with me for that long so far. Uh, But one of the interesting things about having an anniversary at the end of February is that even though we got married while we were living in Missouri, having an anniversary at the end of February is perfect for living in Tucson because it almost always falls right on rodeo weekend. And I know despite looking at me, you might think "Uh, you're probably at the rodeo, aren't you? No, (laughs) not so much. But it gives us a great opportunity to leave town for a little while, get away, but almost always when we go on vacation, there's a little bit of a, a tension. And that tension is this. When I go on vacation, I want to unplug. I want to disconnect my cell phone, turn off my iPad, turn off my laptop. I don't want to be in contact with anybody for any reason anywhere other than Morgan. I just want to chill and watch the ocean roll in. Morgan, on the other hand, wants to plan. <laughs> She wants to know exactly what we're doing, when we're doing it. She wants to fill the calendar with events. I would say, you know, if, if I want to go on vacation, I, if I want my schedule to be booked, I'll stay at work. <laughs> and she would say, right, but if I didn't want to do anything, I'd stay at home. <laughs> Let me ask you this. How many of you all would say that you're probably more like me? You'd like to, when you go on vacation, you just want to chill. Raise your hand, would you please? Okay. How many of you all are more like Morgan? When you go on vacation... Okay, Dan is like waving his hands back there, yeah. Yeah, I think, Morgan, you probably win this one. All right. Uh, you know, here's the deal. I, I think that, for the most part, one of, the, one of the problems with this is, at the end of vacation, both of us are sort of frustrated, right? Uh, if we are busy the whole time, I get done with my vacation, and I need a vacation. <laughs> Morgan, on the other hand, if we do what I want to do and just spend time chilling, feels like she's wasted her time. And I think that if we're honest with ourselves, a lot of times life can feel more like Morgan's situation here. We get to the end of our day, the end of our week, the end of our month, our life, and we say, you know, I'm just not really sure what I did, (laughs) you know? I'm not sure what I accomplished. It felt sort of like I went through the motions, right? I made dinner, I changed diapers, I went to meetings. But at the end of the day, I'm not really sure if I did anything that accomplished anything. Over the last few weeks and continuing for a span of 40 days, we're doing this thing here at Grace called Community Bible Experience. You've heard us already talk a little bit about it, where we're reading through the entire New Testament in 40 days. We're reading it without the chapters and verse divisions. We're reading it in big chunks, whole books at a time sometimes. And the reason that we're doing it that way is because we think that when we read it together, like it was originally... uh, prescribed as it was originally written as people originally understood it that it can help us to understand and unpack a little bit about what this means this last week as we were reading one of the characters that we talked about one of the characters that we looked at i don't think that at the end of his life he was like i just don't know if i did much you know i i I don't know if i mean i know that i exchanged oxygen for carbon dioxide but i don't know that i did much else Uh, This man that we're talking about by the name of Paul, uh, the Apostle Paul, is a man that I think we could best describe as a laser-focused leader. 
He was a man who at the end of his day, he never worried, like, did I do anything worthwhile today? He's a man that I honestly believe had a huge impact in this world. And a man that even goes as far as from Dr. James D. Tabor, who's a professor at the University of North Carolina, Charlotte. He said it this way. He said, Paul is one of those people for whom a last name is not necessary, much like Madonna or Elvis. I don't know that Paul has ever been lumped in with Elvis and Madonna before, but he said, I have begun the course with what I intend to be the most startling assertion. Paul is the most influential person in human history. I have in mind, of course, the West in particular, the foundations of Western civilization, from our assumptions about reality to our societal and personal ethics, rest upon the heavenly visions and apparitions of a single man, the Apostle Paul. We are all cultural heirs of Paul. Now, let, let me start by saying this. Before we dive too deeply into who he is or what he said, let me, let me say that I know that many of us come to this from different places, Okay. Some of us, we were raised in church, right? Like we remember hearing the stories of Paul in Sunday school when we were little kids with the felt board or in newer times with PowerPoint. And we remember who Paul is and his journeys. Maybe we've done that. There's some of us here though today that maybe you've just started reading about Paul. Like the person in Bernie's group who she was sharing, you know, has just started like reading through this together and you're reading and you're like, oh my goodness, this guy, Paul, whoa, (laughs) he's pretty amazing. I need to kind of dig into that a little bit more. And I understand there's also probably some of us in here today who we have no idea who Paul is or why Paul is someone that we should think about. In fact, the only reason that we're here is because you're the same age that I am. You're 37. And when you were a senior in high school and the Falcons were last in the Super Bowl, (laughs) that hurts a little bit as a Falcons fan, uh, you, you made a bet with one of your classmates the next time the Falcons were in the Super Bowl, you'd come to church and you lost, so you're here. So I'm excited if you're here for that reason. I'm excited that you're here. But let me just say this, no matter where our background with Paul is, I I think there's something from Paul's life that we can get, okay? There's something from Paul's life that I think that will help us at the end of the day not to have this space where we're like, did life mean anything, okay? As we were reading through it, let let me share with you what I think is the big idea that I want us to go home with, okay? And it's this. The big idea is that a clear and focused purpose eliminates the ability for you and others to make excuses. Let me say that again, okay? A clear and focused purpose eliminates the ability for you and others to make excuses. Now, Paul, what Paul had done as as we look through this, Paul wrote a letter to a church in a city called Corinth that we're going to be reading. If you have your Bible, it's in the book called 1 Corinthians. It's a letter that we eventually, that eventually made its way into our Bible. We're going to be looking in 1 Corinthians chapter 9 today as we kind of look through this. If you have your books of the Bible book, which is the one that we're going through CBE with, it's on page 128. We're going to start about midway through the page. Uh, Also, by the way, if you don't happen to have a Bible with you, You can follow along either on the screen behind me, on your phone or on your iPad or your Android tablet by just going to gracetucson.org slash Bible. And let me say one other thing before we pray, and that's this. If you don't own a Bible, we would love to give you a Bible. You don't have to write your name down, do anything like that. But as you leave the doors today, over on your right, there's a welcome to grace table. And we would love to just give you a Bible because we think there's something spectacular that happens when you look at the words in this book that God breathed and the life that they give. So if you would like a Bible, please let us just give you one. It would be our gift to you. 
And with that said, we're going to dig into this, but before we do, we're going to pray. So let's just pray together and ask that God would show us what these words in this book mean. God, as we look at this book, God, sometimes we come to it from lots of different places. God, sometimes this week we've had a rough week. Sometimes we've had a great week. And God, we know that wherever we are, there's this thing that happens that when we read this book, it reads us, that you read us and that you get us. Jesus, we want to tell you this morning that we love you and thank you so much for loving us. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you're reading out of the Books of the Bible book on page 128, we're going to start down in about the third full paragraph on the word though. We're going to read through two paragraphs today and we'll unpack it then, okay? It says this, Though I am free and belong to no one, I have made myself a slave to everyone to win, and by the way, you'll notice this word showing up a lot, to win as many as possible. To the Jews, I became like a Jew, to win the Jews. To those under the law, I became like one under the law, though I myself am not under the law, so as to win those under the law. To those not having the law, I became like one not having the law, though I am not free from God's law, but am under Christ's law, so as to win those not having the law. To the weak, I became weak, to win the weak. I have become all things to all people so that by all possible means I might save some. I do this for the sake of the gospel that I may share in its blessings. Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one gets the prize? Run in such a way as to get the prize. Everyone who competes in the game goes into strict training. They do it to get a crown that will not last, but we do it to get a crown that will last forever. Therefore, I do not run like someone running aimlessly. I do not fight like a boxer beating the air. No, I strike a blow to my body and I make it my slave so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified for the prize. I think Paul would have done a killer job at today's halftime. Sitting in the locker room. Guys, we, we've got to win. Let's do it. Let's huddle together. You see, not only was Paul motivational, but Paul got his team. He got his people. You see, Paul was writing this book, this letter, to a very specific group of people in a city called Corinth. This city that he understood, that in all honesty, I think you'll see a lot of parallels between Corinth and Tucson. Corinth was a mercantile city. They had a very uh, robust economy. They traded in antiquities. They had all kinds of amazing things going on there. They had lots of culture. He also knew that they were a very economically segregated city. We know from history that Corinth was in parts very, very, very wealthy. And in parts very, very, very poor. I just recently read, by the way, that Tucson is the fifth most economically segregated city in the United States where the rich are richer and the poor are poorer and they don't interact. I think Paul would have understood Tucson, by the way. He also understood that there was a lot of bickering going on in Corinth. There was Paul, who some of them really, really liked, and there was Apollos, who some of them really, really liked, and they were kind of debating, and they would show on Facebook their different profile pictures, and some would be blue, and some would be red, and everyone was kind of arguing. They were divided about who they loved. But see, you see the difference is that Paul said, look, in the context of the church, when we come together, we can avoid those things. We can get beyond those things. As a laser-focused leader, we can move beyond the excuses that we would have to not get together. 
in the church, we can come together across economic lines. We can come together across political lines. And we can say to the world around us, look, there's something unique here, and that something is Jesus, right? We can come together around something that otherwise there's literally no chance for. We can get around the bickering. Now, as I read through this, there are three things that I think will help us kind of unpack this. You'll see the notes in your uh, bulletin there. And the first thing that I want us to kind of get is this, that for Paul, as well as for us, we have to know what the win is. We have to know what the win is. Paul knew what the win was. You see, in sports, this is really easy for us to figure out. At the end of the game tonight, we will know who wins. There won't be any discussion. There may be some argument about who should have won, but there won't be any argument about who actually won. Yesterday in the U of A, never mind, I'm not going to talk about that game. <sighs> Sad day. All right, but in business, it's the same thing, right? Like, if the numbers are moving up and to the right, you know you're winning. If they're moving down and to the left, you know you're not. We understand these things, but the question often comes up is, how do I know if I'm winning spiritually, right? Like, am I doing okay? Is this thing, is my life, is it progressing to live and look more like Jesus, or am I missing the boat? And I think Paul understood this, right? Paul understood what it meant to win. In this text, we looked at how it says the phrase to win over and over. And you see, in the New Testament, when Paul would have written these letters, he wouldn't have written them in English. He would have written them in Greek. And we would have seen that the word that he used here is actually a very specific word. It's the word kurdizo. Can you say the word with me? Kurdizo. Let's say it again. Kurdizo. Kurdizo. He uses it five times in the entire New Testament and four times are in these two paragraphs that we just read. This notion of to win. But this notion isn't just a sports analogy, even though it's Super Bowl Sunday, right? This notion of to win had a, also a very specific economic meaning. James, who's the brother of Jesus, when he was writing a letter in the New Testament as well, also uses this word, kurdizo, when he's talking about the fact that tomorrow people would go into the city and they would trade things and they would make money. And they use the word kurdizo to do that. What it meant at that time, the people of Corinth would have absolutely gotten this, is it's to trade something that is of lesser value for that which is of greater value. That's how you make money, right? Buy low and sell high right? And that's exactly what Paul would have said here. There are things that we need to be doing to win is to take that, which is of very little value and trading it for that, which is of infinite value. Not only did Paul get this, but a little over a decade ago, there was a guy up in Canada named Kyle McDonald who absolutely got this. You see, Kyle McDonald said, you know what my win is? What I'd really like, I'd like to own a home. I'd like to have a house. You see, but Kyle McDonald was living in an apartment at the time and he didn't have anything. He didn't have the money saved up. So he thought maybe I could figure out some way to trade for a house. Maybe I could, maybe I could have something that I could trade, but he looked around his apartment and he didn't, he didn't see anything that was really of worth. So he thought, you know what? There's this newfangled technology out called Craigslist. I believe it might actually catch on. And he said, I- I'm going to see if I can trade something to get a house, but I don't, I don't have anything that's really worth that. So he looked around his house and he found something that he thought, I know what I'll do. And he found a single red paperclip. So he put this red paperclip on Craigslist and said, who would give me something, anything for this red paperclip? Before too long, he got an email that said, you know what? I I have a a pen that's in the shape of, of fish 
and I'll give you my fish-shaped pen for your red paperclip. Awesome. Part of the way there. Before long, he traded the fish-shaped pen for a smiley-faced doorknob, which he was then able to trade for a power generator. I don't know why that trade worked. (laughs) That he traded for a snowmobile. (laughs) That he traded for a small panel truck, which he traded for one-year rent in Phoenix. Which he traded for a recording contract, which he traded for a day-long adventure, including getting up on stage with Alice Cooper. Pretty fantastic. And then finally, he was able to trade that for a motorized snow globe that featured the band Kiss. Now, I don't know about many of you, but I don't know many people who are both Kiss fans and motorized snow globe fans. (laughs) So it's kind of a niche market that he was going after here. But you know what? There was one person who said, I've always wanted a motorized Kiss the Band snow globe. A guy by the name of Corbin Burnson, who happened to be an actor and a director who had a speaking part in a movie called Donna on Demand. That he said, I'll tell you what, I'll give you the speaking part for your snow globe. Now, Kyle McDonald, knowing struggling actors and actresses will do anything for a speaking part in a movie, put that speaking part on Craigslist, and before long, he was given a house in Kipling, Saskatchewan. He traded that which was of no value, a red paperclip, to that which was of ultimate value to him, the win, a house. You see, Paul did the same thing. Paul knew the same thing. Paul wanted to walk the same way with people. In fact, Paul says this. Paul says, I do all of this for the sake of the gospel that I may share in its blessing. Paul knew what the win was. The reason that I love working with student ministry, the reason I love it, the reason it wakes me up in the morning is this. I love seeing life change. I love it. I mean, it makes me cry. When we talk about students that we have who just a few years ago were engaged in self-harm and mutilation, right? Who uh, were in terrible relationships, who are now volunteering at the blender and seeing life change under them because of the way they mentor people. It is awesome. Yeah, it, it is awesome. And there is nothing as much as a changed life for Jesus that'll make you wake up in the morning. But I'll tell you this, and you might want to write this part down, okay? When it comes down to a win, if you can't say it, you don't know it. Let me say that again, okay? That, that, that's going to be a little hairy, so let me unpack it. But if you can't say it, You don't know it. And now I'm not talking about saying it in English or saying it up on stage. And I'm definitely not saying if you can say it, you can get it. It's not that way. But when it comes to a win, if you don't know what the win is, if you can't say it, if you can't figure out where the goal line is, you'll never get there. Paul knew what the win was. He knew that if he was going to walk side by side with these people, watch those who were weak, follow after Jesus, that he had to know what the win was. He had to know that the win was that they look more like Jesus. Here at Grace, our win is super simple. As you walk out here and look on your left, there's a blue sign that says, helping each other take steps closer to Jesus by being an authentic community with a heart to serve. Our win is that you look like Jesus. The end is that you look like Jesus. There are intermittent wins. There are intermediate wins. You might be here and you've started doing CBE, Community Bible Experience, and in the last couple of weeks, you opened your Bible for the first time. Let me, if I could just give you a collective high five, I would. Because opening your Bible is an amazing thing, but it is not the final win. 
It may have been that in the last couple of weeks, you joined a life group for the first time and you've held each other accountable and you've encouraged each other and you've cared for each other and you've known each other and you've talked about the Bible together. And that is an amazing win, but it is not the final win. Maybe this week, someone cut you off in traffic and instead of giving them half of a peace sign, (laughs) you prayed for them, okay? That is awesome, but not the win. The win is that you look like Jesus and then you do those things because you look like Jesus, right? If you can't say it, you don't know it. The ultimate win is that you look like Jesus, period. Let me say this though. Besides knowing what the win is, there's a second part of this and that's this. You've got to define what your part is. You've got to define what your part is. Here in about seven hours at NRG Stadium in Houston, Texas, there are going to be a group of people that take the field who have worked tirelessly, who have gone to camps in elementary school and middle school and high school. They have prepared, they have sweated, they have bled, they have cried for what they're going to do. And tomorrow, regardless of who wins the game, we're all going to be talking about them. Uh, Of course, I'm talking about Lady Gaga and the halftime show, right? We know that tomorrow we're, and if you don't believe me, just think back to 2004, right? And the wardrobe malfunction and how many people talked about that. Probably no one can remember what happened in the Super Bowl in 2004. Uh, if Al Masezik was here, he could tell you that the Patriots beat the Panthers, but that's the only thing that anyone would remember, right? But everyone remembers the wardrobe malfunction. Just two years ago, a similar thing happened with Katy Perry. She came out on stage and there were the two sharks behind her and the left shark that went rogue. And over the next week, Jimmy Fallon, Jimmy Kimmel, and all the other Jimmys that are involved in late night shows had a great time making fun of it. You see, the left shark believed that it was the star of the show. And it wasn't. Paul also gets this, right? In verse 22 of 1 Corinthians chapter 9, he says, to the weak I became weak, to win the weak, I have become all things to all people so that by all possible means I might save some. And you look at this and you might think, oh my goodness, Paul has a God complex. He thinks he's God, that he can save people. But the truth is that was the furthest thing from Paul's mind. And this is why it's so important to read this in context, right? 1 Corinthians in chapter 1 If you have your books of the Bible, it's on page 120. He says it this way. He says, For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know him, God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. You see, ultimately Paul knew his role was to speak and preach. But it was God's job to do the saving. It was God's job to be the main character. It was Paul's job to be the right shark, the one that didn't go rogue. It was Paul's job to share and to teach and to speak. Paul knew his part. One of the greatest things about uh, the student ministry here, one thing that I really get excited about is the student ministry here at Grace is called the Blender. And you might be, why would you call it the Blender? That's a weird name. The reason is this. In 1 Corinthians chapter 12, it talks about how in the church, we are all a part of a body. Okay. And that some of us are like thumbs and some of us are eyelids and some of us are baby toes and some of us are lungs and some of us are different parts. The new English translation says that God has blended together the body. 
When we come together as a body, it doesn't matter which part of the socioeconomic system you're from. If you're rich or poor, if you're a Republican or Democrat, it doesn't matter. We all have a part to play. And the truth is, when we know that part, when we get to play that part, it's amazing. For some of us, it's teaching and preaching. For some of us, it's working in children's ministry alongside Mel and Lucy who do a bang-up job. For some of us, it is doing other things like preparing the coffee or bringing out the heaters, things like that, so that when new people come, they're comfortable and not cold. And each part of this has a big deal to play. For some, like Brian and Cindy and others, it's singing, which you've got to be thankful that your pastoral staff doesn't sing. I promise. Dave's better than me, but it's uh, it's sad. Uh, (laughs) Each part, each part of the body has a part to play. Each part has a part to play. Lately, Morgan and I have been building a house, okay? And I'm really excited about it. We've had a lot of people do different things, right? There was a person who came in and poured concrete. People came in and put up the walls. In fact, uh, just this week, you might not know this, but my mom and dad are here. They're over there. Mom and dad, wait. <laughs> yeah, my mom and dad are here. I'm really excited about that. They came in, helped us a little bit with some windows and some doors and some things like that. Everybody has a part to play. But I'll tell you one part that when it comes to construction, nobody wants the person who cleans the porta potty. I promise, it's not a job that you want. But I'll tell you, if that person doesn't do their job well, it wrecks the whole thing. Because jobs that are supposed to take two hours take three or four hours because people are constantly having to leave. In our porta potty, and this is a weird picture to show during a sermon, I get that. Uh, in our, in, uh, there we go. Uh, at our house, I want to show you this because here's the thing the individual who does this understands their part and they do it with joy. Notice how when they sign in for the dates, they put little smiley faces and they say things like Merry Christmas and Happy New Year. How amazing would it be if we understood that no matter what our part of the body is, that our job is to do it with joy because we're working for God and not for ourselves. That the person who cleans the porta potty has just as important of a job as the person who put up the walls, as the person who laid the concrete. What if we did that? What if we embraced where we are and said, we can define our part. If the person who was trying to clean the porta potty came out and started trying to smooth over the concrete, there'd be a big fight. If the person who was doing the concrete tried to come and clean the porta potty, they'd probably let them. But, <laughs> but the truth is, if we all define our part, if we all will engage in our part, it moves the conversation down the field. We get to where the win is. But there's one last thing that we need to talk about today. We know what the win is. We know how to play our part. But the third thing is that we've got to stay focused. We've got to stay focused. You see, Paul could have easily gotten distracted. Most people believe that 1 Corinthians was written somewhere around the year 54 AD. And by the year 54, all kinds of crazy things had happened to Paul. He'd been cast out of cities. He'd been tried to, attempted to be stoned to death. He had been thrown in jail for letting like for freeing a girl from a demon that had possessed her all of these things are things that would have easily allowed someone to just give up but not paul paul stayed focused if you look at the text it says i train my body i know that whenever we run a race that everybody gets a participation trophy no that's not what he says right he says only the winner gets a trophy i've got to stay focused i've got to stay focused in our world which is pulling us lots of different ways. Let's say it this way. In our world, which is pulling us lots of different ways, be a laser, not a lamp. 
Let me explain what that means. Be a laser, not a lamp. You see, what happens is that there's a world that has a lot of lamps. There are times that we need to be lamps. As parents, you need to be a lamp for your children so that they don't step on Legos or so that you don't. Okay? There are times that you need to be a lamp so you can help people navigate things. But there's also a time when you need to be unbelievably focused. You see, lasers have the ability to cut through steel. Lasers focused at a fuel tank can make the fuel tank explode. And the reality is, Paul was laser-focused, not lamp-focused, on one thing. You see, Paul could be a lamp for many things. For the weak, he was a lamp. For those under the law, he was under the law, which is a lamp. But he was a laser for one thing. There was only one target. Because here's the thing, with a laser, if you try to shoot it at a bunch of different targets, you'll hit none of them. Paul shot at one thing. And in Philippians, he tells us this. He says, look, everything else except for knowing Jesus is trash. Everything else. All of the other things, all of the intermediate wins are amazing. But compared to knowing Jesus, they're trash. They're garbage. They're useless. I've tried a bunch of other things, but literally everything else is garbage. So that I could gain Christ. So that I could win. I know what the win is. And I think a lot of times... We drift from this, don't we? Like we have things that come up in our lives, things that are awesome, things that are incredible, things that we get really excited about. And slowly but surely, we drift away from the focus of who Jesus is. You see, Paul knew that if he was going to do this, he had to stay focused on one thing and one thing alone, on Jesus Now, today, I'll be honest, we've talked about a lot of different things. We've talked about Paul, we've talked about you, we've talked about me. But at Grace, we have one focus, one man, a man named Jesus. And Jesus is the perfect example of what it meant to be a laser-focused leader. When he was asked by people, so so why did you come here? He didn't waver on this. He wasn't like, well, you know, I came to kind of like cheer on people in the Super Bowl and I came to do this, that, and the other. He came for one purpose. And Luke, he says it this way. He says, I have come not to those who think they are righteous, but to those who are sinners and need to repent. You see, Jesus knew his purpose. He was clear on his purpose. There was no wavering on his purpose. He knew that people would say, but Jesus, if you do that, they're going to kill you. And he said, yeah, I love them enough to that's okay. You see, Jesus knew what his purpose was. He knew that when he came to this world that people would say, but Jesus, if you're the son of God, if you spoke the world into existence and now you're hanging around with tax collectors and prostitutes and sinners, everyone's gonna say, that's not a real God. He said, I came to call those who know they need forgiveness from their sins. I came for a very specific reason. I came for you and for me. Jesus came here to this earth for you and for me. And I think for us today, if we're trying to figure out how to live this kind of focused life, I think there's two questions that can help us get there. I think there's two questions that I think if we boil all of life down to answering two questions, we can stay focused. Let me tell you what those two questions are because we need to wrestle with those today and we're going to even before we take communion. They are these. Number one, what are you going to do with Jesus? What are you going to do with Jesus? Jesus, this man who said, I am so focused on you that if I have to go to the cross and die so that you can be forgiven for all those times that you've drifted off of God's will for your life, those things that we call sin, if I have to die for you, I will. The question is, what do you do with that? What do you do with Jesus? That first question, if you can answer that question, 
for some of us here, we've never answered that question before. We have no idea what the focus of our life is. And I will tell you that that first question of what do we do with Jesus is of so much importance. And here in just a minute, I'm going to pray. And if you've never answered that question, I want to give you an opportunity to pray along with me and help figure that out in your life. The second question is this. What are you going to do with the rest of your life to demonstrate the reality of what you said to the first question? What are you going to do with the rest of your life to demonstrate that reality? When I come down here in just a second and I'm praying, I'm going to ask some of you to do something that's super uncomfortable that you've never done before, I promise. I'm going to ask you while I'm praying on the inside of your bulletin, on the sermon notes, on the back, there's a place and I want you to pray by writing. Here's what this says. It says, no one in blank set out as seriously as did blank to imitate the life of Christ and carry out so literally Christ's work in Christ's own way. And what I want you to do is when I'm praying, when some of us are answering this question, of what are we going to do with Jesus? Some of you who've already answered that question, what I want you to do is this. On that first blank, I want you to write where you are. Northwest Tucson, TMC, Raytheon, retired community. Set out as seriously as did, I want you to write your name. As Bill, as Susan. To imitate the life of Christ and carry out so literally Christ's work in Christ's own way. And I want you to take this, and I want that to be your prayer, that this will be how you demonstrate what you said that you are going to do with Jesus. In my office, this saying sits right above my computer every day. I look at it. It says, no one in Northwest Tucson set out as seriously as did Chris to imitate the life of Christ and carry out so literally Christ's work in Christ's own way. My prayer is that that's your prayer that that will be the demonstration of what Jesus has done in your life. That whether it's at Ironwood Ridge High School or whether it's at Raytheon or at a hospital or being a stay-at-home mom, that you will say this, that no one set out as seriously as did you to imitate Christ's life in Christ's own way. So I'm going to pray for us. If While I'm praying, if you've never answered that first question, pray along with me. It's not the words that are magical. But it's what we say, how we answer that question. For those of you who are writing, we're going to write in silence. And then we're all going to stand together and we're going to do one last thing before we take communion. Okay? Let's pray. Father, Jesus, we don't know necessarily what it looks like to answer this first question yet. Maybe we haven't answered this first question yet. And today, Jesus, we just want to answer this question of what are we going to do with Jesus by saying, since you gave us your life, we're going to give you ours. We believe that you died on a cross and that three days later you beat death. We sang about that earlier. And because we believe that, we believe that you will forgive us for those times that we've lost focus, that we've gone sideways, that we've sinned. And Jesus, because of that forgiveness, we believe that the rest of our lives will be lived to demonstrate that reality. Jesus, you gave us your life. Now we give you ours. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I'm going to ask everybody to stand up right now. If you are able, stand up. There's going to be one last thing on the wall. And I want you to say this with me. And it's our prayer together. And it says this. We, as grace, set out to imitate the life of Christ and carry out literally Christ's work in Christ's own way. I believe that if we live that out like a laser, it will impact Tucson like a laser blowing up a fuel tank. Let's do it.